All right, sit back, relax. It's time for another Laneway Talks. Hi, everybody. We're talking to Paul Janowskis today from Cattle Truck. He's a long-term member of Laneway Music, uh, part of the family, and we've known him since the 80s when he had his band Cattle Truck and a big hit with Resurrection Shuffle. How are you, Paul? Never been better, thanks, Vince. Mate, we... um we talk about uh, we do a, a fairly similar profile on all our interviews, and we start by saying, "Where did you grow up, Paul?" Well, I was actually born in Auckland, New Zealand, and then uh, my family moved over here in '69 to Melbourne. Yeah, I consider myself an Australian, <laughs> so, so um, we we where, lived a couple of. Yeah, I was going to say, well, where did you where did you go to school here? Well, we um, we kind of moved out to the eastern suburbs when we got to Melbourne, and um, I went to school initially at um, oh gee, where was it? I think we were living in Bulleen, and I went to primary school at um, Bulleen Primary School. Yeah, I think. Pretty, pretty upmarket <laughs> suburb there. Oh, kind of, yeah. And then, uh, then we moved to Lower Templestowe, which was kind of That's um, even more upmarket. Well, was it? Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was. It was kind of track. It was kind of track homes, if you know that that uh, USA kind of term. Yeah. You know, there was developments out there basically, yeah. and lots of open spaces and. Un- unused land back then, but there was patches of houses. So yeah, we moved out there. Um, well, tell me, went- Paul. At so that's at like the age of nine, you moved to Australia. Have you got any interest in music at that age? I started at about the age of eight or nine myself, playing drums. Where were you? Were you actually, uh, you know, a bit of a budding guitar player by that stage? Well, it, it all sort of really came from my father, who, amongst um, his sort of professional careers as a microbiologist, and then. Uh, an executive. He was also a really good musician, um, and he he'd played guitar and sung and played harmonica kind of all all his life, really. And um, so, you know, from a very young age, there was always a guitar around, and he'd, you know, play around the house quite a lot. Paul, so you I, know, when you say that that like that, did you used to have like a Sunday music session or whatever? My father was a clarinet player, so on Sunday nights after dinner, he would get the clarinet out. And he'd play for us all. Did you have anything? Well, we we would, it was nothing so formal, but my father would often play just for relaxation. In fact, he played with bands back when he was a teenager in New Zealand. So he was playing with kind of hot, largely Maori kind of dance bands, you know, dance rock and roll bands. Oh, Back okay. when he was a he was a youngster, so he, he was pretty good. Anyway, so he would just but he would just play around around the house. We didn't do anything you know, anything formal, but mm. so there was always but it was always around. And then when I was well, I was probably very young. I don't know, maybe I was ten or eleven. Mm. Uh, he decided he, he needed some um, backing on bass guitar, and so he bought me a. Uh, well, it was really for us, but he bought bought me a cheap bass guitar. Mm. And so I, I started playing, uh, I guess, bass guitar, backing him. So that was your first initiation playing bass, uh, probably. But I was also I'd also grab his guitar and, and mess around, and you know I was always watching him and trying to you know sort of follow what he was doing. Well, ra- ra- it was just around that time yeah, that you're doing mm. that. What was the flavour of music that you were listening to as a young ten, eleven, twelve year old? 
when I was that young, it was <laughs> I had the old Valve radio, which I mm. I painted metallic green, if I remember correctly. That was in my bedroom, so I was just listening to you know whatever the the, lay, the AM rock stations were in, yeah. in Melbourne at the time. Probably three XY or when no wrinkles when no wrinkles flew at the time apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and um, but my father had a really broad taste in music, and he would. You know, he had a record player and records, and he would listen to anything from you know, Russian military choirs through to, you know, Ike and Tina Turner, Rolling Stones, Desmond Decker, lots of sort of R&B stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, he loved Daddy Cool, stuff like that. You was, know? That, so it was, really, was that influencing you? Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah, big time. So, you know, that was my first exposure to lots of lots of different music. So, so where did you... Yeah, it was pretty broad. Did, and when... And w- what did you start doing after that? Did you, you know, you obviously then picked up the guitar because you're a guitarist. Did you just play around for a couple of years you know, like a lot of people and, you know, you rehearse at home on your own and think you're the Beatles and play with the Beatles and, you know, and go, maybe I should get a band together or get some mates and do the garage band? Well, well it's sort of interesting. This is probably not an unusual story for that era, but certainly out in the burbs where I was uh, growing up, there was not a lot to do for, for youngsters. You know, there wasn't wasn't much going on, to be honest, and you're a long way from the city. Public transport wasn't great. So you tended to make your own fun and, you know, your choices were sort of, you know, riding trail bikes, building your own early stage BMX bike and banging around on that, mm. hanging out at the local shopping centre or getting together and, and, and playing with other mates in, in the local neighbourhood, you know, who are varying abilities and across all sorts of instruments. So there was it was kind of a little garage band scene going on. I mean, but what, you, what you're kind of explaining there is that due to there being no real social media, mate, we had to make our own entertainment and... So if you, you know, music was such a big part, even though, oh, yeah, I had the the Valve radio too, you know, and that's what you had. Uh, then you got the little solid state and you think, man, I'm, I'm so lucky. But, you know, music was such a big part of life in a sense for entertainment and yeah. therefore if you, you know, like you said, you hang out at the local shopping centre or you've got to make your own fun, ride your push bike or get your guitar and start, you know, rehearsing in the garage. That's exactly right, and so that's what we did. And there was oh, there was all sorts of little little acts. There were some really great musicians in the neighbourhood uh, as well. And mm. so we, I was playing with a number of little sort of garage bands. You know, we'd be we'd be annihilating Deep Purple and thrashing the Rolling Stones and making a mess of Jimi Hendrix. But it was it was great fun, and it was, it was there wasn't there was less bass players around than there were guitarists. Of course, everyone wanted to be a guitarist, and yeah. so I was. I was not a bad bass player, so I found myself in, in quite a bit of demand. What about um, what about vocals too? I mean, you're a vocalist, just so, you know, of course. And how did you discover you could sing? And that's it's you know, it's pretty hard. Yeah, there was always people that wanted to be singers, and so I was working in little bands that had had working. I use the word loosely, but playing with little bands that had um, you know singers or wannabe singers, most of whom weren't very good, but mm. some of whom were. I, I so I wasn't, you know, I didn't really take that up until a bit later. Yeah. I think I kind of remember. I think I probably 
wrote one of my first, probably the first song I wrote was, I don't know, probably in 1976 or something, you know, and um, which which I wrote it and so I sang it, you know. And that was probably when I, when I started singing. But my father was a really good singer. So I was kind of, I think that's how I got it, you know. I sort of inherited it. Um, but I didn't, yeah, because there was lots of other sort of wannabe singers around, I, I didn't. You know, I took to it a little, quite a bit later from um, from when I started well, playing guitar. Things always, things always get more serious when you get to high school. Now, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's not sex, drugs and rock and roll, but it's girls and rock and roll. And if yeah, right. you can be a rock and roller, you're a very popular boy. So, um, and, <laughs> and you know, the maturity musically comes in at that, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. That's, I think, when your your music maturity develops and that's where you get an instinct for what you like. So what were you doing? Well, I was pretty much doing that, you know. I discovered that I guess that you're playing music Tended to back then tended to make you quite popular with girls and and you know and your mates and all these other people. Mm. So I was I was you know I was doing that. I mean we were doing that for a while. There was and there was gigs to be had. There was you know something to play at the local social club. You know there were occasional dances and what have you around. So that was a big bonus. And and it was a little bit. <laughs> there was one period there around that age. I think I was kind of like a surfy, right? Mm. But you know I had the long blonde hair and yeah. would wear all the sort of surfy gear. Um, yeah. And I and I'd play with one local garage band who were sort of similar, but I don't know if you remember back in the days there was the, the skinheads and the sharpies yeah, absolutely. versus the versus the surfies, the yeah. two kind of subcultures. And there was basically a local skinhead band as well who were really good guys and were actually quite good. They didn't have a bass player. So So you joined. <laughs> So I was I was quite I was I was quite lucky because they were like, well, geez, even though you're a surfy, yeah. you're a pretty good bass player. Come and play with us. So yeah. I was kind of working across. I was playing with the local skinhead band with with my surfy outfit on, and I was playing with the local kind of surf. So yeah, so we were. I was doing. You know, I really enjoyed that. My father made the the fairly quite a big mistake of. I think he and I went halves in. In a, a really like a quite a serious Fender beat up old Fender basement basement fifty amp and a yeah. quad box, you know, yeah. which was very much you know overkill for a teenage boy. Yeah. And um, I'd have that in my little bedroom, and I'd be cranking it, and it was just mental, you know, driving everyone crazy. You know, whenever I wasn't at school or, or studying or what have you, I'd be, you know, banging out those ACDC riffs at concert level volume well, <laughs> in the well, neighbourhood. Well, well, how was the divide between school and music? Were you going to pursue an education, uh, you know, path or was music had settled in and that, that's what you were going to do? Well, look, it, to be honest, it was a really big distraction and it was something that I, I far preferred doing um, than, you know, the study and study and school. I mean, I was, I mean, I was you know, probably a mediocre student, yeah. but only, only through lack of, lack of application, to be honest, you yeah. know, I was just yeah. very, very much more interested in, in, uh, in music by, by that stage, you know, and I realized I was sort of, like, you know, I wasn't bad at it. So where, where so, were we heading then? So you're on the bass, yeah. You're not a fully fledged guitarist at all. You're bass. Where are we heading? When's the first band come along where you go? Uh, I'm starting to get serious now. Well, what was a, what was a little bit interesting at that that period? So I was probably 
uh, look, I don't know. I, was, I don't, can't remember what form or year I was at, at school, uh, at high school, probably quite young. I don't know, form four or something. Yeah. But what I digress. But what was interesting or unusual was that just in my in a couple of within a couple of blocks of where we lived at in Templestowe, uh, you know, within two streets there was I don't know how many. It was a couple of guitarists, but also up just around the corner was the Seymour's house, which was Nick Seymour and Mark Seymour. <laughs> And, yeah, and we were mates. They're a bit older than me. Yeah. We were kind of mates, and I really looked up to them. And they were, I think they were both at university at this stage, they were a bit older than me. But, you know, they were, um, they were, you know, playing at home. And, and then, you know, I would go around and watch them and pick up on what they were doing, and they were very good. And then I would sort of make myself or <laughs> kind of go, oh, I'm playing with you guys now. <laughs> <laughs> And so I'd sort of, little youngster, I'd be in there and I'd be, you know, playing along with them, just yeah. casually, really. But yeah. we did do a few parties together here and there. And so, you know, that was literally my neighbours. Well, it's a great and initiation, they, that's for sure. Well, it was. And they knew my father and really liked him and he really liked them. And, you know, we'd, we'd sort of all, sometimes they'd play with him a little bit on rare occasions. And it was a funny little thing. And then my and then my sister, um, who's four years younger than, than I am, mm. She was a great and high, and I vaguely remember, so I think it must have been a Saturday afternoon or something, my father and I were um, hanging out in the lounge room at home and just playing, you know, he was playing guitar, I was mm. playing bass, we were just mucking around, running through a few songs, and then my, my sister turned up with her kind of recent new best friend from high school, which was, who was Kate Soberano, <laughs> a very, very young Kate Soberano, and <laughs> So Kate and my sister come in and, and, you know, and it was all quite friendly. And then I don't remember what song we we chose to do, but I think we probably said, oh, so we hear you're a singer, let's do a song. And um, I don't remember what it was, but away we went. Kate started singing and I remember my father sort of giving me a, a sideways glance going, basically going, this girl's incredible, you know, this young teenage girl is incredible and I, I could only agree. So, yeah, it was a, a funny little scene. Isn't that, isn't that interesting, Paul, how I, I do get this story from a few people where musicians have friends at a young age and they're people that have, you know, gone on to heights and it seems to attract you know the like. You know, a, a, a like, likes attract. You get people like that because there's some big names there that you're talking about. Yes, yes. Well, I was twenty foot from great greatness, you know, <laughs> through through my adolescent years. But it was quite good. It was something to aspire to for me, you know. Yeah. I, I, you know, when I was sort of occasionally hanging around, or regularly hanging around with Nick and Mark Seymour, they weren't doing me any favours. They wouldn't really show me anything. Yeah, gotcha. They'd sort of go, all right, you can hang around and watch, you know. Yeah. So I'd kind of, I'd watch what they were playing and then I'd go home and I'd try and, and I'd sort of work it out myself. They yeah. were well advanced where, where I was yeah. and had very interesting taste in music, you know. So it was it was kind of cool and they were into, those guys were into oh, kind of like, I don't know, it's like pre-punk stuff. So yeah. it was through them that I heard not only the Doobie Brothers but things like the vibrators and the velvet underground and Lou Reed mm. 
and all this very interesting, the Ramones, you know, all of this really early stuff, really, really early on that you would never hear. You weren't hearing anywhere in Australia, you know, at all. You can get it on 3XY anyway. Oh, no, absolutely not. But they were very into that, as were their other sort of musical colleagues at the time, and because they were all at university or, you know, tech. So we're, get, so we're getting a bit of a picture of where you're – your music, um, your music depths are coming from. Really, you start to name some of those acts. So where, hmm. so what happens from there? Where you know, because obviously you didn't uh, go out and start gigging with Nick and Mark and Kate Separano. So what happened? Uh, what happened? Well, I don't, I don't think I was really doing that much. But then, um, well, I studied double bass very briefly when I was at Melbourne High School, yeah. which had a, a very strong music department, but I really wasn't interested in the formalised sort of the formalised side of the very good music program that that school luckily had at the time because I was like, no, I've got I'm playing with other bands on the weekend I'm doing the real thing, you know, yeah. I'm not going to go and join the high school band or play in the orchestra, which was probably stupid of me, but but, you know, I had a lot of other stuff going on. So, um, so yeah, when was that? So sort of 17, 18. Well, I was kind of like a little bit of a gang leader at that particular school and but, I had my little... But you didn't have a band. You didn't have a band, did you? I don't think I really had a band at that stage, no. Well, let's, let's, um, move, let's move up to what was the first band that you had formally that you, you know? Well, uh, well, it's all a little bit vague, but... I was a huge Hunters and Collectors fan right from the early days, and they had uh, their original guitarist was a guy called uh, Ray Tostigera, and it was you know it was kind of an interesting it was sort of an interesting dynamic because Ray was a basically a suburban kind of Doncaster boy, and he was kind of a disco guy, and I, I don't know if you, if you remember back to those very early Hunters and Collectors tracks, such as Talking to a Stranger. A lot of the motifs, the guitar motifs, were these kind of really plinky, super clean, little kind of plinky, almost disco funk guitar parts. Well, now that you've said it, I'm going to listen to it after this interview and see what well, I. Well, they were from they were from they were from Ray, and from Ray, it was from Ray's kind of disco influence, a little bit of a Nile Rogers chic kind of influence in his guitar style, which was a real contrast to this kind of jungle industrial feel that the husband collectors were doing at the time. Would Mark talk to you, by the way, Mark Seymour, or he'd never talk to you? Oh, he'd definitely say hello, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. Haven't seen him for many, many years. Yes. Um, anyway, uh, long story, try and keep the, cut the long story short, but there was a bit of a dichotomy there going on within that, that band because the rest of them were sort of intellectuals and they were all... You know, either at university or finishing university. You know, mm. they, were, they were all quite um, quite intellectual, really. As was the, the sort of style of music they were doing, in a sense. And so, you know, on one side you've got this kind of Italian disco guy from the burbs. On the other hand, you've got the majority of that band being kind of, you know, quite intellectual with really left wing. Um, or really left-leaning kind of musical influences, such as you know, Can from Germany, Velvet Underground, all kinds of was very Fletch, different influences. Was Flotsam Jetsam before Hunters or after? It was before, wasn't it? Oh, you mean the Jetsons? Yeah, yeah. Wasn't it Flotsam Jetsam? Uh, no, no, Flotsam Jetsam was Sydney band. Right, so um, it was the Jetsons, yeah. The Jetsons, yeah. That was that was when they were all. That was a yeah. That was before Hunters. Yeah, some of the same people. 
that was kind of like a party covers band who were quite good and did play around a bit. Yeah. Anyway, there was a falling out between the guitarist, Ray, and the rest of that band. So <laughs> two things happened. Um, Hunters were auditioning the guitarist, and I actually went and had a fairly atrocious audition with them, which obviously didn't work. You were a bit, ner- bit nervous, were you? Oh, I thought of. I was yeah. probably well, probably quite a bit too young as well. Yeah. Anyway, but I knew Ray, of course, and then I get a, I think I got a call from Ray. Yeah. A couple of months after he'd left or been kicked out or however that worked out, going, oh, you know, I'm starting this new kind of kind of like a disco funk R and B band looking for a bass player, you're pretty good. Do you want to come and do it? And I went, yeah, all right. So that was an act called Soldiers of Fortune. Right. This was Ray's new band and really nothing, nothing at all like Hunters and Collectors. But it was, you know, it was kind of, it was quite a good act. And um, so I joined them and we, off you go and you know, tour. We rehearsed yeah. a bit. And then we played around. Oh, we didn't tour, but we did We did quite a few shows in Melbourne, and it was now quite well attended. I remember we played the club in Collingwood. We played the underground. It was kind of like, it was It was very funky. I was playing bass. Yeah. It was all right. So man. how long that go on for, a year? Yeah, probably about a year. Yeah. Yeah, not, so, not much longer at all. So what, ha- weird. so what happens there at the end of that? Well, nothing really. I sort of, I don't know, I... I Sort of don't think I did much in the way of music for a while. Yeah. Um, Are we talking? Early, you're in your early twenties now. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. you've decided to go to work and you're not doing music. Well, I didn't have a lot of choices. You know, I had to live. So. <laughs> like yeah, all, I think I like I just, all of us. Yeah. I just sort of you know I stopped. I think I just stopped stopped music. I still loved it, but I yeah. just kind of stopped playing for a little while, or just there was nothing going on, no bands around that I was interested in. So yeah, it was kind of I was DJing as well. I, I sort of started DJing at clubs and what have you. So you know I was doing well, how, that when I did the spark. How week. did the spark come back? It was it was funny, really. I, I um, a couple of guys that I knew who were living out in. I'm not sure. I think I might have been living in Abbotsford at the time. Um, Jamie Martin and Tony Dennis. Tony was playing bass and Jamie was playing drums. Jamie had worked, I think, I think he was, I think he'd worked with a band briefly called Wild Dog Rodeo, mm-hmm. which I think Charlie Todd, my, on, the sax player, might have played with. Anyway, that had ended. But anyway, Tony and Jamie were playing together and, um, you know, trying to come up with something They never approached you, yeah? Yeah, they approached me to come down and have a bash with them. So I I did. I just grabbed an acoustic guitar and went down and and the three of us started playing. And then, so that was the beginning of Cattle Truck. Really? And a bit of a click click happening or not yet? Oh, well, fairly rapidly. It was it was funny because we were just um, we were just really irreverent and we were just doing covers and we really didn't give a shit. We were really just doing it for fun. Mm. I think Charles came and played sax with us. I'd met Charlie back in some little band I played with back when he was at La Trobe Uni briefly. Um, anyway, so I think it was four of us then. So we started playing and we would just do it for fun but we'd do stuff like we were pretty cheeky and because we were we weren't electric we were really portable so so we'd do we'd do stuff like we'd just you know we'd someone we'd find out someone was having a big party wherever you know carlton or whatever it was Fitzroy, and we'd just rock up kind of like in one car we'd just rock up with our instruments and set up out the front in the street and start playing oh really <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> 
And people loved it. People really liked it. They liked the irreverence of it. They liked the kind of punkiness of it. They liked, you know, the music was kind of good. So it was kind of a little bit rockabilly. Original. A little bit rockabilly, a little bit punk. Covers or originals? And we used to do stuff like that. You could call it a pop up if you like. Were they cover (laughs) songs or originals? Yeah, no, at that stage they were all covers. Right. You know, like. Well, how how does the original writing come up and start? Oh, well, I've kind of always been writing. I did mention that I think I wrote my first song when I was about maybe 13 or something. Um, How did you get serious about it to go, I actually want to perform these? Well, I think what happened was so at that early stage with that band, we, you know, we were doing these pop-ups here and there and we started getting a bit of reputation and we do stuff like um i don't you probably know rob first who was who ran beat magazine and who's a piano player and before that he was a promoter yeah quite an active promoter but he had a a big night at this um pub called the metropole in fitzroy at the time we had a night there big groovy night you know um and so we decided well, let's go and crash the Metropole. So we we frocked up there one night on their big night, set up out the front in the street, started playing, and basically emptied his room. <laughs> Everyone came down to, to watch us on the street, which is absolutely hilarious. Anyway, uh, we ended up getting quite a good little following. Um, people people liked it. So you thought then, to yourself, uh, let's do some originals, yeah? Thought of. I, I mean, I was keen. I was keen to record. I didn't think we were ready for it, but an opportunity came up. Um, do some free recording for some guy who was a, a student studying recording at some tiny little studio in Richmond. Yeah. I'm like, well, you know, we should probably do something original because we're going to actually bother to record, which was sort of a big deal for a little band at that time. Absolutely. Um, brought in one of my tunes, a song called Never Is, worked it up. And thought, Jesus doesn't sound too bad. I might have a career here. Oh, I think I'd always wanted a career, but I was – I didn't think it was, well, up until around that point, I didn't think it was ever really going to happen. But, of course, you know, do that first recording, and we kept doing it. We did a lot of shows, and and we were completely independent. You know, we'd self-promote, and we started getting quite big houses. You know, we were starting starting to pull quite reasonable numbers. Yeah, that's a good sign. For various reasons. Good sign. Ah, yeah, you know, like it's sort of... Things build by word of mouth, particularly back then. But you know, any you any band, but any band, Paul. You know, a lot of bands can just gig and gig and gig, and it's, it is what it is. And yeah, they get a few people there, mm. and that's it. But you know, when it's building, each gig, mm. there's more and more people. It's connecting, mm. and nothing's different. It's the same now digitally, and it was the same back then physically. Yeah, well, there was sort of there was a buzz. You know, we just there was a buzz on the band basically after you know a period of a year or two. Um, so and of course we just capitalised on it. And, so you know, well, how did how did you get signed then? If you then start to put all this together, do, well, it was quite a it was quite a path to there because after that particular recording, we'd also been doing some other recording. We'd been doing some live. I had a studio space by that stage um, where we'd rehearse in Paran, just like a big space above a shop. It's quite good. I guess just through my connections with the Hunters and Collectors guys, uh, you know, I knew Johnny Archer there, bass player and sort of tech guy quite Mm. well. He was doing these live to digital two track recordings at that time, some new technology. And I said, well, you know, can you come and record us, you know, at, at my place? He said, no problem. So he, he recorded a, I don't know, a session. I don't know, we did, I don't know, six songs or something there, live to two track, and it wasn't bad. Yeah. 
So I had that recording, and then we did a studio recording of my song Never Is, and we're like, well, let's put it out. So I arranged to... Cassette? Have them, yeah, have them, well, have, no, have them mastered and pressed. Don't to vinyl. Yeah, we did uh, seven inch vinyl. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, so, okay, gotcha. I think we did a thousand, I don't know. Yep. But that was kind of a big step, because it wasn't easy to do that back then, and not no. many people, not many indie bands did it, to be honest. No, and the, and the um, few that did actually do it did w- really well. The Saints and whatever, you know, um, hmm. the chosen few did it, and they did really well. There was a, there was a few bands if you had the guts to get up and do it, and then make them available at your shows. It was it was kind of rare, so it was great. Hmm. Well, we did it. So what we did, we arranged the. Well, I arranged from memory. <laughs> um, we 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 took the Prince of Wales upstairs, the band room, took that for a night. Hmm. Our own night. I can't remember who the support acts. We had a couple of support acts were on. We were the headline act, and it was a giveaway. So everyone that came in and paid whatever it was on the door wasn't much. I can't remember. Got a free single. Well, wow. yeah, good marketing, and that worked really well. So you know, we got rid of a, quite a quite a number of singles. You know, we got a lot of airplay on the public radio stations. Oh. I think right across Australia, actually, but certainly in Melbourne. Well, you know, in, you know we were, interestingly too, back then is you said you get radio airplay. So if you get it on three X Y, you're really doing well. But oh, uh, no, it wasn't. But it wasn't happening. But you know, Triple R and PBS and all those they were really influential back then. And and could actually help break you, which is not the case anymore. That's for sure. I can assure you of that. Mm. Um, that's very true. They were extremely influential, and they were the only place you could hear stuff that wasn't mainstream. Mm. You know, it, it was even before FM radio, I think. And you know, we were big supporters of those stations. I did, you know, many. We did many, um, you know, benefit shows supporting Triple R, supporting PBS, and so on. And happy to do so. And and of course, they got behind us as well, which was. Which was great. And anyway, so that was good. But then from there, the next step was um, basically, you know, we were getting quite a few bookings. But then a young agent at Premier a Premier Artist, um, who I'm sure you know, the, the fabulous Gerard Schlagheck. Oh, he took you on, uh, did he? He took an interest, yes. And um, for various reasons, he kind of liked the irreverence of it all. Well, I used to and see also, you hanging around Premier because, you know, I was at Mushroom at the time. Well, I used to see you hanging around there all the time. That's a good sign because they're the people that mm, get you the gigs. Yeah, he was really fabulous. Look, we were portable and we were cheap and we were keen to work, so that always helps. You know, he got he got behind it and, you know, we were pretty flexible. So we started getting through Gerard and indirectly through Frank and Premier. We started getting heaps and heaps and heaps of gigs and many, many, many support shows, you know, which was really great at the time mm. you know then i decided we should go to sydney and so we took it up to sydney which you know literally on the, on the smell of an oily rag we were just crashing on various people that we did or didn't know we were just crashing in their houses in king's cross you know now this, would be, on the this balcony. Would, now this would be around the time of uncanny x-men too yeah yeah they would have been going at that stage mm. yes but they were big and mate they were big and mainstream and we were definitely very alternative mm. At that at that point, so but you know it was great. We we got a bit of a, uh, a profile happening in Sydney, just you know off our own bat, and we we did lots of little gigs, little little headline shows up there at the little inner city venues. Now, that, is that where you got spotted by regular? Not sure, actually. I'm not really sure the the regular connection that we ultimately ended up with, but we uh, we started. Well, you know, as, as it happens, you know, the industry starts once you start once once you can pull. 500 people as it was back then basically yeah. 
on your own, you know, of course, the industry starts circling like the sharks start circling. They yeah. can smell the blood in the water. Yeah, yeah. So there was a lot of that going on. And, you know, I'd become more ambitious at the time and it was a it was an amazing time for Australian music. Oh, you were definitely a, you were definitely a man about town, no doubt about that. Oh, out and about, doing it all. I and, remember you know, on a- many occasions being out with all the mushroom girls and who should be there but our good friend Paul from Cattle Truck. <laughs> yeah, well it was funny see mushroom never um, Mushroom never really made me a decent offer, no. and um, funnily enough, but what was happening is because I was I was writing as well, and we were doing you know, kind of mainly originals. I think by that stage, I won't say they were great, but they were original. Mm. Um, there was a lot of interest in Australian songs, Australian songwriters. It was kind of peaking. I mean, this was this is when Australian music really started making big inroads internationally, yeah. either both on the college circuit in the US mm-hmm. for the more, I guess, alternative bands in it, but also in the mainstream, you know. And in that particular period, of course, Men at Work had really kind of started that new role of the ball. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you had In Excess, you had Divine, or you had, you know, quite a number of Australian, ACDC, of course. And there was Cattle was, Truck amongst it all. Well, well, not really, but trying to be amongst it, you know, I was, sort of inspired by it, thinking, well, you know, now's a really good time to have a, a really good crack at it. Mm. So so did you approach you know, regular or did they approach you? don't really remember, but it may have been, look, it may have indirectly, they may have heard of us through doing shows in Sydney and they may have heard of us through their relationship with Kate Sobrano. Mm. Um, well, you, well, you know, well, I remember at the time quite clearly, who did Resurrection Shuffle around the same time as you? Was that, was that Jimmy? Yeah, Barnsley right. did a verse. Because I remember at the time, you know, I went, oh, God, you know, here we got we got Cattle Trucker doing it, now Jimmy's doing it. Oh, that's that's not good. Well, he might have, I think he might have actually preempted us to that. But, but the lead up to that whole... The lead up to getting signed was kind of interesting because mm. um, I was I was very keen. I sort of realised that the Australian market was it was and still is is really very small in terms of international scale. Absolutely. And even and I knew you know I had friends and peers who were at that point really successful in Australia and hadn't made any inroads overseas, mm. and they were still slogging their guts out here, and none of them were really making money. They were breaking even. It's lucky. Well, we, we, lucky. Had, we had no success overseas as Mushroom, I can assure you of that. I mean, we, we sent Jimmy over to do the shows and we had Geffen behind us and we still couldn't get anywhere. Came back home and, you well, know. We really couldn't get any success over there. I mean, the big one was when we had the top 10 with Locomotion with Kylie. Exactly. But, you know, so it was, uh, yeah, it was not obviously very difficult to break internationally, but I thought a first step would be to have, well, one, I wanted a manager. So I've been managing it up to this point and it mm. was going, you know, really, really well. Well, who did you get? Well, there wasn't, the thing to me was, I wanted a, a ma- I wanted an Australian manager with international experience um, with a view to trying to, you know, get some success internationally and hopefully an international record deal and a push in bigger territories. And at that point, there wasn't many Australian managers around who had that kind of experience. So by virtue of those kind of early trips up to Sydney, um, really early on, partly through that, MMA, which was um, Mm. Chris Murphy's company and Inexcess's company, really, became 
very interested in, in me or us, mm. me. There was also a connection there because uh, I knew Sean Kelly from the models quite well and Sean had gone from Mushroom Camp over to Chris Murphy, really. And um, so anyway, MMA, were, there was a young guy working at MMA at the time and so it, all of our sort of action came from the ground up. So there was, you know, the, the lowest guy on the totem pole at MMA was a big fan oh, yeah. and was coming to all of our shows in Sydney and who, he'd come who down was, to Melbourne. Who was and, that? Who was that? Uh, his name was Justin, was it Justin Van Stom? Mm, don't know him. You're going, back a long, you're going back a long time. I think his name was Justin Van Stom. But anyway, he was championing, he was, he was championing us within MMA, you know, so they, they got right into it. They were kind of keen. They gave us our first national tour, which was opening for the models on at the height of their success, which yeah. was which was a fantastic good, good run. Com- good combination. Yeah, not bad. Oh, yeah. Well, it worked well and it was a lot of fun and it was, you know, we were very lucky to have that opportunity and it was a hoot. Oh, and, it would have um, been with, uh, with all that lot in fighting, yeah, it would have been fantastic. Yeah, there was kind of peak models, if you like, that oh, James Floyd yeah. on bass, that yeah. Wendy Matthews singing on backups, yeah. that James Valentine on sax, Barton Price on drums. It was a really, really yeah. good, you know, it was the Australian-made concert series oh, lineup. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, well, yeah, I remember it well. It was that lineup, you know, and, you know, great material. They had hit singles at that stage. Anyway, it was a it was a really great run. It was a lot of fun, and so being young and really cheeky and and probably stupid, I'm like, oh well, I need an international. I want an international manager, so I want Chris Murphy or someone else who should remain nameless because they were kind of the only ones around at the time. So I ended up in this kind of bidding war between another manager who should remain nameless, mm-hmm. who had a. a quite an international track, track record, mm. and Chris Murphy from MMA, which is insane because I'm like all of 22 or 23 years old, cocky as all get out. <laughs> so anyway, I get into this, I set up this kind of, well, yeah, basically a bitty war between these two big-time hotshots. And, and anyway, I made a decision um, away from MMA, mm. which with hindsight I think was the so wrong back decision. here in Melbourne, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, no, you're talking about it. Yeah, okay. Oh, and MMA, well, that's another thing. They're like, you know, will, will you move to Sydney? We yeah. want you to move to Sydney. And I wasn't particularly keen at that time to do that as either. So anyway, a number for a number of reasons, I chose someone else. Well, they couldn't help themselves, and, Paul, because Melbourne was the music capital of Australia and they used to dream about being the music capital of Australia. All they were was the financial capital of Australia. Mm. But, uh, yeah, yeah, but no gigs I've up. Got, gigs I mean, I've got, to give, I've got to give Chris Murphy and MMA some credit. I mean, look, they were very, very, very good at what they did. They were very supportive of Australian music and they broke, you know, they broke in excess you know, globally. And anyway, um, so long story short, then so this manager that I, I went along with, he was I was pretty overt about what I wanted. Who will not be named, yeah. That's right. And so um, anyway, I think we were shopping. We were shopping stuff around, basically trying to get a deal with an in, hopefully with an international. So I went to CBS or Sony. I think it was yeah. probably still CBS back then. And yeah. And they gave us, well, they gave us a Guernsey to go and do some demoing for a couple of weeks up at yeah. their studio in Sydney, which we did. Now, you, know, you, you, know, now, you know, when they do that, and they were always doing that, I can never understand it. You know, you go and you go and have a look at the band play live, and if you're a good A&R person, you go, man, they're on fire, we're signing them. 
I mm. I always used to think when they do it, Len, let's do some demos, let's have a listen. Mate, you're in a holding pattern. Yes, well, we were, and the sessions weren't great, and, you know, frankly, the material wasn't great, and... It, you know, it just didn't go anywhere. And so, in a sense, we were running out of options, mm. uh, I guess. Regular had knew of us, and I think that my management at the time... Was it Jeremy Fabrini at Regular? Yes. Yeah. Oh, Martin Fabrini. Martin. Martin. Jeremy's Martin, been yeah, brother, yeah. brother's Jeremy. So, anyway, they... Um, uh, yeah, I think they'd... I'm not sure who approached who, but and I think that regular knew of me probably through this Sobrano mm. connection because we were sort of still friends back then and what have you. So and you signed um, to regular, yeah? Well, it wasn't that simple. I remember, like you were saying before about, you know, good A&R person should just be able to go and see the band in a room and say, yep, yeah, that's good. Well, I can tell you we knew what was going on at Mushroom. <laughs> we were all over it. And we knew that it was going too slowly for you. I can tell you that because we had meetings on it. And we really? knew that the cattle truck situation wasn't looking good. It was moving too slowly. And you should have been signed and you should have had your album out. It took way too long to come out. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, I, I think with hindsight, that's right. But anyway, so, but I remember Martin coming down and my management hosting him here in Melbourne and we were doing I can't remember what it was I'm pretty sure we were playing at the, the great venue the old venue mm. down in St Kilda which was a fabulous room I don't know if we were headlining downstairs or whether we were opening for someone upstairs but it was huge and it was a really great night and we were on fire and it was great and he just you know he just came in to witness it basically and I think largely on on the back of that went, yep, you know, we'll do it. So that's the regular so signing, yeah. So which which was which was good. I mean, I put that a good label. He gave me a hell of a lot of leeway, probably too much, too much rope to hang myself on. But you know, we launched into trying to do, trying to record. And Chris Murphy had had an opinion about what we should do. Mm. With hindsight, was who was was probably right, but I didn't want to do that. I wanted a full blown big studio record. Mm. with high production values and, you know, something a little bit sort of cutting edge. And by that stage, I, I was not really interested in the kind of alternative scene per se. Well, you were looking, you know, you were was, looking for real success, big success. Well, that's, yeah, that's right, actually. I mean, yeah, basically that's right. So away we went and that whole process took forever. It took a very long time. It was really difficult. You know, we weren't the best players. There was lineup changes before those sessions, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, away we went and we just worked the hell out of it all. Was the and first, I had great support was from the Premier. But was the first single Resurrection Shuffle? Was it that or not? No, no, right. the first single was a song called Change. Right, that's right. Which is which is still stands up today, in my opinion, mm. as a pretty good song, a great production, mm. great feel, a little bit political. But, you know, that just kind of, in a sea of in excess, you know, divinals, I'm talking, whatever, you know, just a huge, there was a whole lot of killer Australian mainstream music coming out of that period and um, my stuff just got lost. <laughs> yeah, and I think, look, as I said, I think we, we knew what was going on. It was dragging. Unfortunately, it was dragging, and uh, there just needed to be a lot more urgency about getting it out and people knowing Cattle Truck, and it took quite a while for your, your album to come out. I mean, 
it, uh, it did. It took a long time to record yeah, and yeah. finish, and it, and it took a long time to come out, and we had the, the dreaded artwork issues. Oh, uh, God. Hold-ups, and, oh, you know, there was just, was just problem, 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 problem after another, you know, one after another. And then we got it out, and we were lucky enough to get quite a bit of countdown exposure, which sort of helped, but we yeah. just, it just didn't take off did as you, I'd hoped it would Did you end up doing a festival hall? Did you do a festival hall, or...? Uh, Oof. Or maybe support someone. Not, not as a headline. I remember we opened for um, we opened the new order there. I think that's what it might have been because yeah. we may have been touring them at the time. It was early days. No, no, that would they would have they were being toured by uh, uh, Ken West and Vivian Lee. So oh, we had a little okay. bit of a connection with them yep. at a period of, for a period in the early days. They put us on to I think it was the second Violent Femmes tour, mm. Mm. which was also you know fantastic and. Because we were, in a way, besides lacking the songwriting genius of those guys, we were similar in some ways in the early days when we were sort of semi-acoustic semi act, you know, with a whole lot of attitude. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, Not yeah. much in the way of chop. So they went, oh, well, who's a, yeah. who's a good support for, for the um, violent fans? Yeah, it works with them, doesn't it? These guys, you know, so... So what's happening um, here? So this album, you know, we're, we're dragging our feet and it comes out. But you did have, where did Resurrection Shuffle go to? It's top 20? Where did it get on the chart? Yeah, did it go top 20? Uh, it did quite well. We all knew about it, that's for sure. Well, I can't, gee, you got me on the numbers here. Um, it might have scraped top 20 nationally. I mm. think it may, it may have gone top 30 nationally, but mm. really briefly. Mm. And then so what, um, so what's happened from there? Well, we were we were touring like crazy, trying to, you know, just doing what you do. We were, yeah. we were touring like crazy. Were and, you making um, money from those tours or were you coming out of it with nothing? Well, we were turning over quite a lot of money, relatively speaking, but we weren't seeing any of it and this was... Isn't that, isn't that just, it's the injustice of it all. It's the same old story and, you know, you really do need really good management when that's mm. happening to make sure honesty is part of the policy and that the band are looked after, but, man, it just gets lost in a lot of them. Yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not saying there was necessarily dishonesty going I'm not, on. Not but saying, I'm, not, I'm not saying that either, but I'm saying, uh, you know, if I say honesty, um, money being, being kept it's tight. Just that, it's just that thing. I mean, uh, you, know, you have to do it. You know, I mean, you basically have to, well, back then you had to tour to support your record. But it's keeping money tight and making sure there's money left over for the band to live. Too many times, I, mm. I, I, I reiterate it, I won't, okay, I'll say it's not, it's not dishonesty, it's lack of professionalism to make sure the people that are making the money are actually seeing some of the money. And it used to just drip through everywhere else. Well, mm. you know, I agree, and and uh, you know, after a period of time, it came to a head because we'd racked up uh, apparently, you know, some fairly substantial debts, including man foregone allegedly foregone man management commissions, and uh, you know, huge bills here, there, and everywhere. I mean, my crew always got paid. And well, but uh, look, it was just, it just all, it got to a point where, you know, we, we put out a number of singles off that record and nothing really, nothing took us over the edge, you know, uh, sadly. And yet we, we kept touring, we kept playing and we, you know, the, the live business sort of, you know, kept chugging along, but we were just, we seemed to be going further and further down the hole. And I was getting really annoyed with, with management for a number of reasons. They hadn't secured me an international release. Mm. 
Um, we'd come very close, but it hadn't happened. And, um, and you know, the business just, you know, the dollars and cents weren't making they weren't adding up correctly as far as I was concerned, and we were working very hard. And that was the end of we're, Cattle Truck, yeah? Well, in a sense, I mean, the ending was quite amusing in a way. Um, tra- tra- it's a tragic comic, a tragic comic ending, really. I was basically really pissed off with the management at that by this point because, you know, we're turning over lots of money, yet we're somehow going further and further into debt. They hadn't got me an international secret release, we didn't have a top 10 record. In my mind at that time, there was a whole lot of issues. And, and so I, I basically said to the band, I said, look, we've got to stop touring mm. because we're just getting further and further down this hole. This record's basically done its dash. We need to sort of, we need to do something else and we need to re sort of recollect what we're doing and work out what to do. And so, so I, I said to them, you know, I want to basically stop touring. I want to get rid of management. I want to start doing a lot. I want to start doing basically cover band gigs. Well, you know, we were you, you, weren't, you weren't in a different position from a lot of others. The last models tour was purely sorry. The, the sorry, la- the last two. the last models tour that were, yes. was uh, performed was purely done to pay off debt. Mm. They actually didn't want to do the tour, but they had to do the tour mm. to pay off their debt. So it was so common, you know, to get into this debt. And that's where I say it comes back to professional ma- management. And you get people like, the, you know, MMAs who they were big. And so there's big overheads just in the management company. It gets very difficult to leave money for the, the band themselves who are creating the music. It's it's a, it's a travesty, mate. So off you go and start doing some cover gigs and start making well, money, of course. Well it, didn't, well, it didn't get, to, it didn't actually get to that, but. That was the circuit that was was like the early tribute band things, mm. you know, your Grand Wazoos. They were all doing doing well. Big, they were doing big business, mate, back then. Yeah, they were doing big. big business. I already had a horn section. I'm like, okay, let's do like a, a soul R&B band just yeah. for a while. Let's just do that, get some of these shows, yeah. get some money, and then take it from there. So I was I was sort of suggesting this on the other hand, on one hand. And on the other hand, the management was getting in the years of the rest of the band going, Oh no, no, that's a really, really bad idea. You should just keep going. You should keep the grind up, mm. and basically, you should sack Paul. <laughs> yeah. Imagine sacking sack the si- sacking the, the singer. The, that never works. The front man, the yeah. singer, and the main songwriter. Yeah, and and basically the producer as well. Yeah. You should sack him, and, and it'll be fine. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that's ultimately what happened there, and then you were given your marching orders. Yeah, I was giving them a marching orders. They got another singer. I can't remember the name. They got another singer to do my bit. As, oppo- as opposed from the uh, as opposed from the slap on the ego, right? It probably was a a, a lot of weight off your shoulders too. Um, yes, yeah. In a way, I was kind of pretty over it all mm. by that stage. I was I was tired of media. I was tired of radio. I was tired of TV. I was tired of the slog. Mm. I was basically really burnt out. You know, mm. I had a really, I was very passionate, and I had a very, really big red hot go at it all, and it had, it had turned to shite. Mm. So anyway, so they put in another singer, and they limped along for another couple of months, and of course that went nowhere. And then, and then my manager 
decided to sue me for, oh, I can't imagine what the initial figure was, somewhere in the order of a quarter of a million dollars. Fantastic. I didn't have one brass resume mate, at that stage. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, you know, that was pretty bad. And um, I ended up, uh, oh, it was all, it was serious. It was all on. Anyway, we ended up settling, uh, ended up settling out of court on, on the steps, actually, and for a much reduced sum. But then I had to go and take a personal loan out at, you know, something like 22% or 25% interest, a personal loan to pay this person to get them out of my life, which which I did. That slap on the door shut, isn't it, eh? Mm. So, but but what was, (laughs) it was funny because the upside, well, not the upside, but during that period when everything was not going well and the you know, the band, I wanted the band to stop touring, what have you. I need to keep earning. So I had this little trio, I put together this little trio called Gas, which was myself and the oh, rhythm yeah, section. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were playing these little, I had a regular, I think I had a regular Thursday night at the Tock H Hotel back then. Oh, which yeah, yep. Back then, that was a, they had a thousand private school kids in there from, you know, around the, the neighbourhood, regular as, and the, yeah, the, the promoter was Tom I just saw Rose Dado play there. Yeah, well, the promoter was a friend of mine and um, had a tiny little stage, but he he put me on, he put us on for a couple of sets every Thursday night, and yeah. it wasn't big money, but it was regular money. And we were just doing covers, and it was actually quite good, you know. It was, mm. it was all right. And um, so when my cattle truck turned to, to shit, basically, I, um, you did I the went, gas. well, I'm going to... Yeah. Well, yeah, I thought, well, I've got, you know... Three, three quarters of a band here. Let, let's do that, and so that's well, when I know, moved you, into. You know, you talked about that, that you had the horn section and all that, but when you listen to that gas record, it's a pretty hard rocking record. So, oh, that that yeah. was yeah. I, I mean, I had a, I had a horn section with cattle trucks, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah, but you <laughs> which know, which me off horn ga- sections for life. Yeah, but you know, gas was quite a hard rocking band, and so how long did gas go for? Well, it went for well, it went for. A, I don't know, a couple of years. Yeah. So I added Brett. Brett Kingman came on on guitar. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Who's a monster guitarist. Yep. Brett's pedigree was quite long, even by that yep. stage. Um, Uncanny X-Men. He was James Rain's solo. Yeah, was, that's right. When James Rain did his solo stuff. And he had his brother Scott, yeah. Yeah, Berger's been on that. Scott played with me in Cattle Truck, late late period Cattle Truck. Oh, did he? Yeah, because you know, there was a lot of guitar stuff going on in that. And I yep. wasn't covering it by myself as well as singing. So I knew knew those guys. And we were doing um I just like little gigs around Melbourne, but we yeah, we were pretty wild. We were, we were pre- and it was mainly covers, but uh. we're a pretty good and wild kind of act and we drew we quickly established quite a strong a really strong little life following around Melbourne. And you know, we had a lot of regular gigs. We had a we had the Saturday Saturday night residency at the station hotel and Greville Street for I don't know three years or something. Yeah. Capacity. I've never, never had ever had a band that pulled more people than us by the end of it. There. <laughs> so and that went on for a while. What I did then was um, I thought, well, I think I got a big APRA check or something, and I thought, well, I reckon we, I should take this band into the studio and yeah. throw down a kind of live live in the studio recording, which we did at Sing Sing. Oh yeah. And then I was talking to you would know. You would remember Neil Bradbury? Yeah, Neil. I knew Neil very well. Worked with Neil for many years. Yeah. Well, so Neil at that point, Neil was A&R for the Mushroom subsidiary White Label Records. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd known Neil for quite a, quite a long time, and he, he sort of knew what I was capable of. And went in and had a chat with Neil, and I said, you know, I want a, I want a new record deal, basically. And I, I said, I want to... 
basically I want a solo deal and I want a really, you know, good deal with a big budget and big support, you know, mm. what can you do? And he, and he went, oh, well, yeah, I think we might be interested. So I said, look, I've got this little album with this done. Mm-hmm. I said, how about, you know, how about I give this to you and put it out and do a single and see what happens. Um, but I was really sort of, I was more excited about, what I saw was the next stage, which was having a decent budget and being completely in control and yeah. going in or well, writing some killer songs without the pressure of touring and what have you and, and going in and doing a really, really good good record with a big um, you know, big support from Mushroom. Anyway, so so, so we press up the single and um, from that gas I think it was, you know, like the week before the release, basically Neil was offered the position to head up EMI Australia, which yeah, he, which right. he took up, went to Sydney, yeah. So yeah, so you left the mushroom fold, and um, that was the end of the mushroom turn, Yeah, mushroom turned around and went. Well, anything that Neil signed <laughs> in the last twelve months, see you later. <laughs> so I I, I I was asked to come in and see Warren Costello, oh, yeah. who yeah. recently joined Mushroom, and I had yeah. I'd had quite a long relationship. Very good relationship Festival. with Warren when he was working at Festival because they were my distributors for Australia, you know, and they they did a very good job. So he knew. So you it was it was terrible. I had to go in and meet Warren in completely different circumstances, and basically he had to give me my marching orders. God. So at that point, I went, you know, I'm kind of done with this. This is it. I'm going to get a job for a while. I'm just going to relax. Oh, look! It was a huge kick in the guts, and it was, you know, I was I suffered very probably you know, quite bad depression for quite an extended period over that, a lot of soul-searching, and, you know, I decided that basically I can't just point the finger at everyone else, and it's all my fault, you know. I didn't write good enough songs, which may or may not be true. Well, mate, I'm the catalogue, look, blah, I don't blah. think for everybody listening, that's not the case. If you go, he came the lame way, and if you have a look at the, uh, the catalogue, of material, there is some fantastic material. And I think what's basically come out for me, for you, Paul, is that you and you, well, it probably now goes back after talking to you about your life, goes back to the start. Your acoustic material to me is so much better than your electrified material. You have a knack for able to be able to write a song acoustically and and sing to it and it all gels and works and not a lot of people can do that and mm. it might be the way you play guitar or whatever it they just it works well and i think it's a, it's an absolutely uh, it works and people can listen to it you know it's all online uh, under cattle truck and i just think it's fantastic and and you've can now continued to to write and, uh, and to get back into it, uh, we have been talking everybody for about five years now about his electric album, but the acoustic material keeps coming out. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Vince. You know, I don't mind doing acoustic stuff. I don't generally do a lot of it, but um, with your and some of your encouragement during the COVID period, it kind of got me back into it. And um, well, if you have a look at the, the the corner gig where you've done the acoustic, it's it's all there. You it can be it really does work, and it's hard. For people, some people to do acoustic. Very Neil Young is so good at it. I think um, Jackson <laughs> Brown is great at it. But you know, far and few between. But, but yeah, it's not easy to do, and as you say, not everyone 
can do it well, and not all material lends itself no, really to an acoustic right. treatment, no, you know, right. um, kind of delivery method, oh. as I've worked out, as I found last year when I was doing all the old cattle cattle truck stuff, acoustic mm. live, which I'd never, well, I'd never I, I really think one of your, done before. your new one's Buffalo Man, is it? Buffalo Man? Yeah. I mean, yeah. what a great track. I mean, great track, it, you know, it's just a shame you're not living in the States because... Stuff like that would work over there. But, look, it's been great talking to you. It's been a long discussion there, but we all know Paul Mm. Janoskis. Nothing comes easy from Paul. It takes time. And, (laughs) (laughs) you know, we got to the end of it where, you know, there is – there's a lot of material up online from Cattle Truck and there's more coming and uh, there's a whole new album we would hope early next year, uh, but there is mm. also the singles along the way. And so I think it's been fantastic, Paul, a real talent, and it's great to see people like you then continue on. You know, yes, you've had your break for your years, but then go, look, I still love doing it and you're doing it now. All right. Good talking to well, you, thanks. my friend. Yeah. Yeah, it's great talking to you, Vince. It's been a while since I've done sort of like a equivalent of a radio promo or radio interview. I guess it's a podcast thing. But, but it's been yeah. good talking to you, and I'll be seeing yep. you at your next gig, okay? Okay, thanks, Vince. Thanks for the opportunity. See you later, people. Talk soon. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it, another Laneway Talks. If you enjoyed that, just search Laneway Talks for more great conversations. G'day folks, Mark Allen here and The Ox, David Schwartz uh, And we've started a brand new podcast called A Couple of Blokes, A Couple of Beers And we're just chewing the fat A Couple of Blokes, Couple of Beers With Ox and Marco I'm thinking about whitening my teeth Just so when I smile There's a new episode every Wednesday Have you got a weight issue? Of course I do It's <laughs> <laughs> a stupid loaded question A Couple of Blokes, Couple of Beers With David Schwartz and Mark Allen I'm eating the kids Maltese You're eating their of... Christmas present I am a piece of garbage <laughs> Listen wherever you get your podcasts